I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. We're continuing today with the second day, the chapter, the second day, continuing on from where we left Jung and Isdubar last week. Carol, you want to set us up and kick us off with the story? So he, Jung has been on again on the double path from the black path and the white path, the freezing cold path and the burning hot path, and has, after having asked his old ghosts, the red one and Ammonius and his his arguments with his um, rational self is heading east where he meets the god Isdubar from the east. And in the dialogue with Isdubar, with his rational, with his rationality in relationship to Isdubar's alternative sensibility about, about where the divine lies, he, he, Jung inadvertently in his search for the heroic or the possible fells it and is devastated by what he's done as he realizes what he's done. And he says, we must think of healing. And yet again, I feel it quite clearly that my life would have broken in half had I failed to heal my God. This is part of how he summarizes it. Hence, I abided him with him in the long cold night. So this idea of the encounter, the grief and loss and the heart opening of love and the realization that another way to be requires him to hold and tend something in a way psychologically and psychically on his path so far he has not and that through this heart opening the possibility of image presents itself and so now we start to get this flood of of heart making, of, of images that come from the heart and not just language and the word that comes from the mind. Beautiful. Thank you. Carol, I thought we should just yeah. read a little bit. Yeah. Second day, page 291. No dream gave me the saving word. Is Dubar lay silent and stiff all night until daybreak. I paced the mountain ridge pondering and looked back to my Western lands where there is so much knowledge and so much possibility of help. I love Izdubar and I do not want him to wither away miserably, but where should help come from? No one will travel the hot, cold path and I, I'm afraid to return to that path. And in the East, was there possibly help there? But what about the unknown dangers that loomed there? I do not want to go blind. 
What use would that be to Isdubar? I cannot carry this lamed one as a blind man either. Yes, if I were powerful like Isdubar, but what use is science here? Toward evening, I went up to Isdubar and spoke to him. Isdubar, my prince, listen. I will not let you decline. The second evening is falling. We have no food and we are bound to die if I cannot find help. We cannot expect any help from the West, but help is it possible from the East. Did you meet anyone on your way whom we could call on for help? Isdubar says, let it be. May death come when it will. Jung says, my heart bleeds at the thought of leaving you here without having done the utmost to help you. Isdubar says, what help is your magical power to you? If you were strong as I am, you could carry me, but your poison can only destroy and not help. Jung says, if we were in my land, swift wagons could bring us help. If we were in my land, your poisoned barb would not have reached me. Carol, let's open up that that phrase there. To me, those two lines, if we were if we were in my land, you know, ambulances would come. Ambulances could come and pick up this sick man and take him to a hospital and help him. There's science, the science of the physical being, right? If if we were in the Western world, the ambulance would show up. And Isdubar says, if we were in my land, you wouldn't have gotten me into this. You wouldn't man. have held me. <laughs> I just love that little paragraph. Again, this kind of the opposition here of what they're really wrestling with. Well, and this really goes to your point, Satya, that we spoke of earlier that, that we, I think bears saying now as we, as we read through this, Jung is wrestling with what actually heals us. Yeah. Where does healing really come from? It, it really is the kind of core of this section for me is you can, again, feeling Jung developmentally in this. And I'm going to ask Anne to, to kind of weigh in here again in a minute because, um, because I think Anne is having a personal experience of this, reading the Red Book with us for the first time, and she's encapsulating it so beautifully. But what Jung is foundationally wrestling with here is, is trained as a medical doctor in the world of science and now dealing with people who are sick in a different way. He chose psychiatry. He chose at the early part of the development of psychiatry to go this other path in medicine. And he's working with schizophrenic patients and now is himself felled by psychiatric inner illness and is tremendously confused. So how do you heal somebody if the, if the, if the illness is invisible and not invisible because it's tiny, like a virus, but invisible, invisible, because it's happening in the inner world. How do you, you know, how do you heal that realm? So he's discovering what he comes to call the reality of psyche, the, the reality of psyche that he's wrestling throughout this whole chapter. And again, there's so many good lines, we're going to get into it. Um, but he's wrestling with fantasy as reality, right? Uh, so there's a lot to say on that. But Anne, can you just share with us? Because I loved, we loved what you sent us via email every week so far I have gone through going through the red book for the first time not the images but the text gone through what the verse is going through and so I ended up last week with that sentence that you already read about I felt my life would have broken in half and I failed to heal my God so I stayed with him for the long cold night but my question then was clearly that's right but how 
how, how do we heal that God? And so I too was left hanging in that long, cold night. And then we came to this verse and already I could feel this tremendous shift taking place in me. And I remember the morning I woke up with an incredible, this is what I wrote in the email, felt certainty that miraculously we are, and that is obviously just a certain percentage of humanity, managing to heal what I call that divine primordial power, not to give it a name. And as I had that, it was almost like a vision, but my whole body lightened. I saw all the many, many things that are happening in our world today that are that healing. One is the 12 step, which I talked about once, which has millions of people struggling with the 11th step committed to prayer and meditation. I also looked at John Kabat-Zinn's work in the medical field. I won't even go back, I won't even go into the Black Lives Matter, but certainly the extension of Jung's work throughout the world. It was suddenly as if I could see the mess that, that we're in from a totally different angle. This is what healing looks like. Mm. And it came with this chapter. And it, strangely enough, you asked me to talk about it later, and I will, but it was seeing that I was a fantasy. That was yeah. so delightful to feel I was a fantasy. So all week I played with being an egg and putting myself in different people's pockets. <laughs> At one point, I put myself in the pocket of the great mother and another time in the pocket of Jung. I mean, I just played with it all week because it was such a delightful, light feeling to just be squeezed into an egg and put in someone's pocket. So I'll save the, the stuff about fantasy until later if you'd like me to. I think that sounds great, Anne, but, but what a beautiful, sweet, and just, I think for Carol and myself as well, this sweet proxy for the, for the full audience here of you taking this journey with us and sharing it so eloquently. Well, and I think it asks, I think that this work asks us to, it's why I took two weeks off from work. You know, it's like, do this, do this. I just want to echo, Anne, that feeling of hopefulness. I have a very dear friend who has been brokenhearted about the children in the camps on the border. And, um, and the, the news yesterday that these families and children will be released, you know, that the judge has ordered the release of I the children. Just the children, which is part of the insanity of it. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's that. It's, it's that, that, some, that, that sense of movement, you know. Not just, is it out there? Can we go looking for it? But that we're seeing it. So I'll continue. Thank you, yes. If we were in my land, your poison barb would not have reached me. Tell me, do you know of no help from the side of the east? The way there is long and lonely, and when you reach the plains after crossing the mountains, you will meet the powerful sun which will blind you. But what if I wandered by night, and if I sheltered from the sun during the day? Isdubar says, in the night, all the serpents and dragons crawl out of their holes, and you, unarmed, will inevitably fall victim to them. Let it be. How would this help? My legs have withered and are numb. I prefer not to bring home the booty of this journey. Should I not risk everything? Useless. Nothing is gained if you die. Jung says, let me think it over a bit. Perhaps a saving thought will yet come to me. I withdraw and sit down on a rock high above on the ridge of the mountain 
and this speech began in me. Great is Dubar, you are in a hopeless position and I know less. We, we're in a hopeless position. What can be done? It's not always necessary to act. Sometimes thinking is better. I am basically convinced that Isdubar is hardly real in the ordinary sense, but is a fantasy. It would help if the situation were considered from another angle. Considered, considered. It is remarkable that even here, thoughts echo. One must be quite alone. But this will hardly last. He will, of course, not accept that he is a fantasy, but instead claim that he is completely real and that he can only be helped in a real way. Nevertheless, it would be worth trying this means once. I will appeal to him. My prince, powerful one, listen, a thought came to me that might save us. I think that you are not at all real, but only a fantasy. Isdubar says, I am terrified by this thought. It is murderous. Do you even mean to declare me unreal now that you have lamed me so pitifully? Perhaps I have not made myself clear enough and have spoken too much in the language of the Western lands. I do not mean to say that you are not real at all, of course, but only as real as a fantasy. If you could accept this, much would be gained. What would be gained by this? You're a tormenting devil. Pitiful one, I will not torment you. The hand of the doctor does not seek to torment, even if it causes grief. Can you really not accept that you are a fantasy? Woe betide me, and what magic do you want to entangle me? Should it help me if I take myself for a fantasy? So he goes on in this vein, and, is, and finally Jung says on page 294, so are you prepared to admit that you were a fantasy, and Isdubar says, if it helps, yes. So I'd like to take a little detour here into the definition of fantasy. And I read this in one of the earlier Red Books, but uh, one of our earlier episodes, but it seems appropriate again, because of where does healing come from? It's very much, we're at a profound turn in the story that is turning away from separateness to wholeness and from the capital W word to the heart and to the images of the heart. So I returned to Ursula Le Guin, Oregon's wonderful Ursula Le Guin, who in a book called Words Are My Matter was writing about um, Borges, the, the, the South American poet Borges, and the title of it is Things Not Actually Present, quote unquote, on fantasy. This was at a talk given to the Oregon Literary Arts in January 2005. She writes, the unabridged Oxford English Dictionary is a wonderful book. It's not quite Borges' book of sand, yet it is inexhaustible. All we have ever said and can ever say is in it if we can only find it. I think of the OED as my wise aunt. So I went to Auntie with my magnifying glass and said, Auntie, please tell me about fantasy because I want to talk about it, but I am not sure what I am talking about. Fantasy with an F or fantasy, P-H, Auntie replies, clearing her throat, is from the Greek fantasia, literally a making visible. 
And she shows me how fantasy in the late Middle Ages meant the mental apprehension of an object of perception. The mind's act of linking itself to the external world. But later came to mean just the reverse, an hallucination, a false perception, or the habit of deluding oneself. And she tells me that the word fantasy also came to mean the imagination itself, the process, the faculty, or the result of forming mental representations of things not actually present. And again, those representations, those imagination can be true ones or false. They can be the insights and foresights that make human life possible or the delusions and follies that bedevil and endanger our lives. So the word fantasy remains ambiguous, standing between the false, the foolish, the shallows of the mind and the mind's deep, true connection with the real. And this is how he's healing his God. This is Anne's experience uh, and all our experience of this is where we make the turn into another way to be in relationship to ourselves and the world. Thank you so much for reading that, Carol. That last line too, just where you left off. Can you read that? Is it easy to read that last line one more time? So the word fantasy remains ambiguous, standing between the false the foolish, the shallows of the mind, and the mind's deep, true connection with the real. But it's so interesting to me, of course, that she goes to the OED and talks about how everything that words, everything that's in it, and then segues into, you know, the other, the, the, the juice and the, the eros and the life that it holds that are not, strictly speaking, words. Right. So I'm going to do a similar reading. I think that, you know, this is all in dialogue with each other, but, um, but this is Audre Lorde from this remarkable book of essays, Sister Outsider. And again, this playing with, if we stop believing that rationalism is better than, if the material world and science is better than, if we can hold all of it simultaneously, where do we get to? And what do we what do we get when we retrieve fantasy as real, when we retrieve the poetics as real, art as real, and bring all of this back, dreams, right? So this is, um, this is from the essay that I know many of you know and love, Poetry is Not a Luxury. And I'm going to read another little bit from another essay. So she begins like this. Actually, this is in the middle of the essay. I'm beginning like this with her words. The white fathers told us, I think, therefore, I am. The black mother within each of us, the poet, whispers in our dreams, I feel, therefore I can be free. Poetry coins the language to express and charter this revolutionary demand, the implementation of that freedom. However, experience has taught us that action in the now is also necessary. Always. Our children cannot dream unless they live. They cannot live unless they are nourished. And who else will feed them the real food without which their dreams will be no different from ours? If you want us to change the world someday, we at least have to live long enough to grow up, shouts the child. Sometimes we drug ourselves with dreams of new ideas. The head will save us. The brain alone will set us free. But there are no new ideas still waiting in the wings to save us as women, as human. 
There are only old and forgotten ones, new combinations, extrapolations, and recognitions from within ourselves, along with the renewed courage to try them out. And we must constantly encourage ourselves and each other to attempt the heretical actions that our dreams imply, and so many of our old ideas disparage. In the forefront of our move toward change, there is only poetry to hint at possibility made real. Our poems formulate the implications of ourselves, what we feel within and dare make real or bring action into accordance with our fears, our hopes, our most cherished terrors. For within living structures defined by profit, by linear power, by institutional dehumanization, our feelings were not meant to survive. Kept around as unavoidable adjuncts or pleasant pastimes, feelings were expected to kneel to thought as women were expected to kneel to men. If what we need to dream to move our spirits most deeply and directly toward and through promise is discounted as a luxury, then we give up the core, the fountain of our power, our womanness. We give up the future of our worlds. Let me just read another short passage here from Uses of the Erotic, which again is just sort of critical reading. And I think all of this is critical depth psychological. If you're in this, the realm of depth psychology, Audre Lorde is one of the writers who doesn't come from the tradition, but lives in it. She says here, when we live outside ourselves, and by that I mean on external directives only, rather than from our internal knowledge and needs, when we live away from those erotic guides from within ourselves, then our lives are limited by external and alien forms, and we conform to the needs of a structure that is not based on human need, let alone on individuals. But when we begin to live from within outward, in touch with the power of the erotic within ourselves, and allowing that power to inform and illuminate our actions upon the world around us, then we begin to be responsible to ourselves in the deepest sense. For as we begin to recognize our deepest feelings, we begin to give up of necessity being satisfied with suffering and self-negation, and with the numbness which so often seems like their only alternative in our society. Our acts against oppression become integral with self, motivated and empowered from within. In touch with the erotic, I become less willing to accept powerlessness or those other supplied states of being which are not native to me, such as resignation, despair, self-effacement, depression, and self-denial. Mm -hmm. So bringing back, coming back with the erotic poetry, art, fantasy, Carol, we were talking about this before. Where are you yeah. at with all this? Well, I think that I would like to read the the light as read the rest of this passage, and then I would like to refer, make a reference to Gilgamesh, because there are such really interesting roots in uh, ancient Near East thinking, which of course is, uh, and I, I was thinking about this when I was listening to Kwame yesterday. So much of Greek and Roman mythology and theology 
So much Western theology comes out of the ancient Near East, not so much from Egypt and Africa, but I'm, I, I'd, I'd, I'll finish reading this and then I'd like to go back and, and read a little bit from Gilgamesh because I was so struck by the similarities in the process, in the psychological process that ends in the same thing, the love of a man for his brother. So I'll pick up where I left off. Are you prepared to admit you're a fantasy? Isdabar says, well, if it helps, yes. The inner voice now spoke to me as follows. While admittedly he is a fantasy now, the situation remains extremely complex. A fantasy cannot be simply negated and treated with resignation either. It calls for action. Anyway, he is a fantasy and thus considerably more volatile. I think I can see a way forward. I can take him on my back for now. I went to Isdubar and said to him, a way has been found. You have become light, lighter than a feather. Now I can carry you. I put my arms around him and lift him up from the ground. He is lighter than air and I struggle to keep my feet on the ground since my load lifts me up into the air. Isdubar says, that was a master stroke. Where are you carrying me? Jung says, I'm going to carry you down into the Western land. My comrades will happily accommodate such a large fantasy. Once we have crossed the mountains and have reached the houses of hospitable men, I can calmly go about finding the means to restore you completely again. Carrying him on my back, I climb down the small rock path with great care, more in danger of being whirled aloft by the wind than of losing balance because of my load and plunging down the mountainside. I hang on to my all too lightweight load. And finally, we reach the bottom of the valley in the way of the hot and cold pain. But this time, I am blown by a whistling east wind down through the narrow rocks and across the fields toward inhabited places, making no contact with the painful way. Spurred on, I hasten through beautiful lands. I see two people ahead of me, Ammonius and the Red One. When we are right behind them, they turn around and run off into the fields with horrified cries. I must have proved a strange sight indeed. Isdubar says, who are these misshapen ones? Are these your comrades? These are not men. They're so-called relics of the past, which one still often encounters in the Western lands. They used to be very important. Now they're mostly used mostly as shepherds. What a wondrous country, but look, look isn't that a town? Don't you want to go there? Jung says, no, God forbid. I don't want a crowd together since the enlightened live there. Can't you smell them? They're actually dangerous since they cook the strongest poisons from which even I must protect myself. The people there are totally paralyzed, wrapped in a brown poisonous vapor and can only move with artificial means. But you need not worry. Night has almost fallen and no one will see us. Moreover, no one would admit to having seen me. I know an out-of-the-way house here. I have close friends there who will take us in for the night. Izdubar and I come to a quiet, dark garden and a secluded house. I hide Izdubar under the drooping branches of a tree, go up to the door of the house and knock. I ponder the door. It is much too small. I will never be able to get Izdubar through it, yet a fantasy takes up no space. Why did this excellent thought not occur to me earlier? I returned to the garden and with no difficulty 
squeeze Is Dubar into the size of an egg and put him in my pocket. Then I walk into the welcoming house where Is Dubar should find healing. You know, just that speaking of the uses of poetry and where does healing actually occur. So I, I just have a brief comment and just a little reading from Gilgamesh because in the second night when Jung is staying up and all of this is coming to him, there's a remarkable footnote, footnote um, 110, I think it is, on page 291. I won't take the time to read through it, but it is a, an elaborate Aryan recipe about, about healing the vitality of a wounded man. It's, um, it's both erotic and it's very, very focused on virility. This idea, how do you keep something alive? What, is, what, is, how, what do you search for esoterically to keep something alive? And since it talks about healing the bull man, and since Isdubar is a bull man, it sent me back to Gilgamesh. And this ancient, ancient, early, early story, ancient Near East story, you know, Sumer, Mesopotamia, the ancient Near East, Gilgamesh is a king who, who comes from a ghost father because, because the matriarch, matriarchal lineage is beginning to be displaced by patriarchal lineage, and they don't know who the father is. We don't know who Gilgamesh's father is anymore. We don't know where people come from anymore. And Gilgamesh is rampaging his people. He's a king out of control. He's screwing all the daughters and wives. He's eating everybody's food. And the people appeal to the gods and say, you have to do something about this king. And the gods say, he needs to find the love of a brother. So the people find a wild man, Enkidu, who is tamed by sex with a woman. And in the process of his being, quote, tamed, unquote, by sexuality, she, Shamhat, says, I will lead you to Gilgamesh, the mighty king, and you will see the great city with its massive wall. And so she takes Enkidu, who is going to meet this mighty king. She says, you who are still so ignorant of life, I will show you Gilgamesh, the mighty king, the hero destined for joy and grief. You will stand before him and gaze with wonder. You will see how handsome, how virile he is, how his body pulses with erotic power. He is even taller and stronger than you, so full of life force that he needs no sleep. Enkidu, put aside your aggression. Shamash, the sun god, loves him, and his mind has been made large by Anu, father of the gods, made large by Enlil, the god of earth, and by Ea, the god of water and wisdom. Even before you come down from the hills, you had come to Gilgamesh in a dream. And she told Enkidu what she had heard. He went to his mother, the goddess Ninsun, and asked her to interpret the dream. I saw a bright star. It shot across the morning sky. It fell at my feet and lay before me like a huge boulder. I tried to lift it, but it was too heavy. I tried to move it, but it would not budge. A crowd of people gathered around me. The people of Uruk pressed in to see it like a little baby. They kissed its feet. This boulder, this star that had fallen to earth, I took it in my arms. I embraced and caressed it the way a man caresses his wife. Then I took it and laid it before you. You told me that it was my double, my second self. And his mother says, dearest child, this bright star from heaven, this huge boulder that you could not lift, 
It stands for a dear friend. And then they meet and they battle. And in the end, they embraced and kissed. They held hands like brothers. They walked side by side. They became true friends. So I think one of the things I was so moved by, by Kwame yesterday, and about talking about his dreams and his creation of myths and the profound effect that Malcolm X had on him is that he was touching into a powerful ancestral line when he talked about that his tears were for the ancestors. I, I, th I think about what's in our bones. I think about these kinds of stories that are in our bones and that in the process of, of recapitulating this and coming to the word and the heart and the images of the heart that that it's bringing certainly bringing me i won't speak for everyone else but it's bringing me to a different possibility and way of being mm -hmm. and that i think that jung that love and the idea of the love of the brother and that what comes out of the ability to lo to love the self that Jung is finally not projecting negatively onto these images that he's owned them. They're real. And that, that love is possible and that it creates a whole new life. And, th and that um, brings me to Anne's wonderful quote that she sent to us um, from, from Buddhism, really. Can I just intercept for a moment here? Um, Cause I, I want to one, I just want to note kind of for the record that when you say Kwame, you're speaking of Kwame Scruggs, because this is yes. for the future, Kwame yes. Scruggs. So, but I want to say just a couple things here briefly around this and actually read something before we kick it to Anne here. Um, okay. Because I think what I love so deeply in this line from Jung, when he says, what you just read, we can't go there, that's poisonous. You know, I, I know those people. He's like, they're incredibly poisonous. There's something profound about this whole section and so moving again, the reason I love Jung's work is to, to feel a white man steeped in rationalism saying, this is incredibly dangerous. Because it's one thing always in our society when outsiders say this is incredibly dangerous. And then they get kind of shoved still to the outside. But when an insider says, this is incredibly dangerous, you know, um, it's when it's one thing for a black person to be saying we have a racist society. It's another thing for a white person to be saying we have a racist society. It's one thing for a woman to say we live in dangerous patriarchy. It's another thing for a heterosexual man to say that or for a gay man to say that. It, it's it says something else, you know. There's two words I think in the new English language that that are my least favorite words that have ever been created. Um, and it speaks to me the, the term bromance. This new term, bromance, makes me want to die. It just drives me insane. The idea that men being in deep relationship with each other is something that needs to be fetishized. Uh, the term work wife, I might offend people because I know this is a very, the term work wife drives me insane. Um, you know, both of these modern terms that sort of suggest that these new forms of relationship that two women in a workplace, colleagues in a workplace is sort of new and fetishized or men in deep relationship is kind of new and fetishized. Those terms just drive me nuts. So for me, just bringing this out, what you spoke to, these ancient stories of men learning to love each other again yeah. in deep relationship, in deep, genuine relationship. And what I love, I just want to read this last paragraph here. It's almost the last paragraph in the reading, but it's, again, it's young hacking away at the toxicity of masculinity in the way that we have, that patriarchy has evolved. 
this lopsidedness and the result in our society of sociopathy and divisiveness and power and conquering, you know, so he's taking on this idea of conquering. And for me, again, it speaks to what you said, Carol, about Gilgamesh as the conqueror, you know, that he needed to be humanized with a friendship. Yes. Um, he needed to be, he needed his Eros returned to him. And the Eros came through this woman who came to the wild man who then came to Gilgamesh in deep friendship and relationship. So that's called a friendship. It's not a bromance. It's a friendship. Okay. So, um, so 297, this last paragraph, you gain everything from the God whom you bear, but not his weapon since he crushed it. He who conquers need, needs weapons, but what else do you want to conquer? You cannot conquer more than the earth. And what is the earth? It is round all over and hangs like a drop in the cosmos. You will not reach the sun and your power will not even extend to the barren moon. You will conquer neither the sea, nor the snow on the poles, nor the sands of the desert, but only a few spots on the green earth. You will not conquer anything for any length of time. Your power will turn into dust tomorrow. For above all, at the very least, you must conquer death. And this, that's an allusion to Gilgamesh again, right? Trying to conquer mm-hmm. death, gain immortality. Mm-hmm. So do not be a fool. Throw down your weapon. God himself smashed his weapon. Armor is enough to protect you from fools who still suffer from the need to conquer. God's armor will make you invulnerable and invisible to the worst fools. And at the very end on page 298, set the egg before you, the God in his beginning and behold it and incubate it with the magical warmth of your gaze. I mean, that the arc of that from put down your weapon to incubate it with the magical warmth of your gaze, that's quite an arc. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Such a tremendous shift. Oh, for him to be mothering this egg and honoring this egg and sitting upon this egg reminds me, what's that Dr. Seuss book? Horton hears a who? No. Well, yeah. anyway, the elephant yeah. sits Horton upon the egg. I think that's it. I think that's the story. So sweet to see the man mothering the egg and, and honoring the egg. And so we're going to get there more in these coming sections. Um, But Anne, we would love to hear your reflections on this and more of what you shared with us previously. It was so beautiful, your reflections. Well, thank you very much. Of course, the minute that I read that that amazing sentence, my prince, powerful one, listen, a thought came to me that might save me. I think you are not at all real, but only a fantasy. And it was that sentence that literally just shot through me like a healing. And I was... Right away, the word Maya came to me. And I thought, aha, what he's really talking about is what the Buddha was talking about. And I've read hundreds of books on Buddhism. But trying to say that same thing with the sentence, um, the the 12 steps of interdependent um, origination or any of those long rational discussions that are supposed to bring you to get, look, I'm a fantasy. And I could suddenly not only see, but feel the incredible healing that came with getting, I could be pressed into an egg and just carried in Satya's pocket as far as that's concerned, if if she felt like it. And I would love to carry you. (laughs) And it was such 
a freeing, liberating, like I, I noticed, I told you I laughed a lot last week because I felt so light with that, seeing that. And it all came together with, it was as if I could say, I get what the Buddha was seeing. I get why he said that healed you from suffering, but you can't get there with your head, which is what so much of this book, this verse is about. Jung doesn't, he doesn't give him any rational explanation for it. He just says, do you get it? You're just a fantasy. At first it's a shock, but then it's so liberating. And I was looking at, so I went back and I was looking at a book that um, the French Corbin had written about Buddhism and Jung, and he used a couple of wonderful sentences. I think that's what Carol was referring to. I wrote, for a brief second, and that's really true, I saw unadulterated through Jung and Isdubar's eyes what the Buddha so forcefully was aware of and called Maya. Contrary to reason, Aware of oneself as illusory, as maya, as fantasy. And of course, all this goes together with Jung's notion of projection. As, quote, consciousness finally liberated from the object of its projections, namely Mm -hmm. integration. Mm -hmm. Consciousness that has become pure vision. I might call that pure awareness but pure vision, detached from objects, it really does feel miraculously healing. As I said, like being squeezed into the size of an egg or the secret of the golden flower. So it really is what amazes me that the thoughts that are being thought through Jung contain the deepest wisdom, not only of Gilgamesh, but of Taoism and Buddhism, and they're not coming from a scholarly place. They're coming somehow from the spirit of the depths. It's quite extraordinary. That was basically what I wanted to say. I love that. Consciousness finally liberated from the object of its projection. It's so amazing. I mean, it, it really has something to do with the end of suffering. I just reached back to Jung's... Uh, chapter on the shadow in Ion in in, uh, Collected Works number nine. And I don't know if I'm going to land on the right phrase here, you know, but it's exactly what you're speaking to, of course, is the withdrawal of projection, you know. While some traits peculiar to the shadow can be recognized without too much difficulty as one's own personal qualities, in this case, both insight and goodwill are unavailing because the cause of the emotion appears to lie beyond all possibility of doubt in the other person or in the object. And he's speaking then, what happens when you pull that back, right? No matter how obvious it may be to the neutral observer that it is a matter of projection, there is little hope that the subject will perceive this himself. And he goes on, the projection-making factor then has a free hand and can realize its object if it has one or bring about some other situation characteristic of its power. In any case, there's so many good lines in this. I'm not landing on, on the right ones necessarily, but it is so much about what, what happens when we, when we are able to consciously separate these two things instead of have them be all in a big mix fighting each other. Mm-hmm. But the big, for me, one of the amazing, amazing insights here is that he's not going to leave. He's not going to either kill the gods by leaving them as an abstract idea. Yes. He is actually going to heal them. 
and there was a sentence that you didn't read, Carol, which was, you know that, I think I've got it, um, you also know, you know that the name one bears means a lot when he's trying to get Isdabar to understand the healing aspect of seeing that he's a fantasy. You know that one gives the sick new names to heal them, for with the new name they come by a new essence. And I really and truly, in that vision that I had of healing through this chapter, it was not that we were abandoning the dead gods, that we were actually healing them mm. by, by going to the very essence. We've done this again and again in the universe. We have to give them new names. Yeah. And there's one line that I love. Jung is bringing to the spiritual times a diagnosis leading to fertile reflection. That's what I hear. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And it, what you're saying also speaks to me to footnote 115, which feels really important on 295. This was cut, Jung cut this from the draft uh, in terms of the calligraphic text. So the, the red book that he produced finally with his art and his calligraphy, this was removed. But he said, like many other gods and on numerous previous occasions, the god was declared to be a fantasy and it was thus assumed that he had been dealt with, right? But, but you're saying, Anne, you're really speaking to that quality of moving it forward. Right, the right. healing of it, and that Carol, yeah. do you want to just say as we end your why this section, why you love it so much? I'm just delighted by your joy in these sections. I remember the first time, you know, this is my third read through of really engaging it, and I would say the my first two experiences were intellectual passes. I really do, but even in the intellectual passes, that I that that euphoric feeling of eureka. You know, it's like there's another way to be with this and it's not rocket science. You know, it's heartfelt and it has very much to do with love and a kind of openness and possibility. And that idea of, oh my God, you're so big, I can't carry you. Wait a minute, you're a fantasy. I can lift you. And then now we're down the hill. Oh my God, if people see you, they'll think, how could I possibly have carried this giant being? Wait a minute. I can, not only can you be light, you can be, I can put you in this egg. And not just to call it creativity doesn't even really get to what it is that it is. It's, it's the magic moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time I read this, it makes me happy. Mm-hmm. And then this flood of images that arises as the heart thinks, as, as Jung's heart opens and his heart begins to make images, not just his mind, it's, um, we're, we're in a whole different territory now. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the incredible, you understand the legacy of this in terms of, of healing modalities in a way that I don't. But it's one of the reasons I love astrology is because astrology is the magic moment, you know, that it, it, it's, it's symbolic thinking and it makes pictures, but it's a portal that opens up to possibility. And I, I think about people that have come to see me and said, I could have saved myself $10,000 in fees and, you know, of therapy if I had just talked to you first. And, you know, it says less about me than it does about the process of what, of what happens when you open yourself to a possibility. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you, Carol, so much. And thank you, Anne, for your contributions. We'll open it up for, for questions with you all here. Hi, Claudia. I had a similar experience, I think, last week when I got shaken by some really crazy thinking about um, these times, about Trump, from a scientist. And I don't know why it shook me, but it did. And I was listening to Fanny, Fanny Brewster, on a recent Jungian podcast. And I was, as I was driving past a cemetery, I all of a sudden had that same kind of release and lightness and, and something just fell into me that I think I've realized before, but I realized it again. And it was that poetry, that deep inner voice, inner voice is where we find the truth. And it, it isn't all about figuring it all out up here where you hear so many wildly disparate voices. It's just listening to that inner poetry that comes out of us. And just the knowledge that I can listen to that in me or into the poets that speak from that place and we know them. I, I just, I can't tell you how much I just relaxed in every cell of my body. It was so beautiful. That's beautiful, Claudia. Thank you so much. I love that. To feel that gesturing from, again, I call it the racquetball game of the mind. Just that rapid back and forth, right? And then the instead, the dropping in and finding that sweet essence is so beautiful. I would love to just make a brief observation here from, of, of Anne's experience and Claudia's and, and of so many people. This is the high side of the confinement and the containment and the collapse of systems. This is, this is the gift in, in the breakdown and the collapse. Mm-hmm. And with, with all of these, you know, that we're, as, I, as I've said before, we're at the end of a very, very long line of things having come to a point in which we're at the pivot and that the pivot involves the collapse of things that have worked, the ambulance that roars up and mm-hmm. where it happens. <laughs> and as that's failing, as horrifying as it is, as that's failing, something else announces itself to us that, that we could not be open to or available to actually without it, without the collapse. It's stunning. Yeah. The idea that we could defund the police and replace it with actual care for homelessness and actual care for mental health and actual responses to rape victims is mind-blowing to me. The idea that we could actually, you know, to me, it's the realization of a dream. I just can't even believe it. Um, So to feel that, again, inner and outer shift, to go from that kind of more militaristic internally and externally to something, I'll call it more feminine, whatever we want to call it, is really profound to me. Thank you, Claudia. Hi, Jesse. Hi. Wow. I love where we're getting to with all this. It's so beautiful. And the thing that I... I'm strangely also reading Ion and Audre Lorde this week and um, obviously the Red Book too and um, have been writing a paper about the idea of psychic reality and the sort of loss of psychic reality in Western culture and um, have been asking myself this question all week, like how do we restore it? Like what is the actual mode or where does the magic moment come from where it comes back? 
and we can taste and feel the potency of the reality all around us, the dream reality. The And from Lord, I'm getting feeling. From Jung, I'm getting feeling, like this restoring of, of feeling, the feeling sense. And also what Claudia and Anne are saying around hearing deeply. And now this moment of where we're talking about care, the restoration of care too. So it's all just, I'm just saying this because this is what's swirling around me, but it feels like there's really something here that I feel like I'm getting closer to in this moment around, and maybe care is the word to end on for in what I'm saying right now, but some in touchness that is here. I think that's beautiful, Jesse, and the synchronicity too of all of these pieces coming together for you and for all of us right now of all these different pieces and the care. I, Carol, it makes me wonder astrologically what you might say about this moment of the return of care. Well, here we are at the summer solstice with the sun and cancer and Mercury retrograding and everything retrograding in Capricorn. And so we have Capricorn, which is the, the, the enclosure and the containment of the light. And we have cancer, which is the maximum light and the, the tender regard, you know, nature at this time of year of everything coming up before its delivery. So we're in this exquisite moment of, of polarity between these two powerful cardinal places where spirit enters matter you know the 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 deepest place, the deepest night, Capricorn, and the and the most potent day, Cancer. And you know, for me as an astrologer, not just as an astrologer, but as a human being, my trust in the rhythms of things, you know, of the of the utter reliability and countability of the world that we live in, and it doesn't mean that all of our constructions have not put have interposed themselves between possibility moment and us but that's a part of what this time is about is there's another way to do it and and it it will you know it will take us a long time to find the other way but now we see the possibility and it's why the red book is so resonant and as i have looked at the astrology of every night's journey you know, the astrology of January 9th, 1914, which is this second, you know, the second night is the, the 12th house is becoming more and more inhabited. And so Jung is not only beginning to deepen into a, an experience of a fantasy place, but he's holding it in his body and in his mind in, in the sixth house. Then in his chart, the 12th, sixth house opposition is that spirit enters and how does it inhabit matter and to, and to live it and to hold it at the same time. So, so we're all in that moment, you know, all of us have Capricorn and cancer somewhere in our, how we arrived and began to participate in things. So we're, we're all in this together. And the other thing I'm very struck by, uh, I, I want to thank everyone who's taking the time to email and talk about your experience and, and what you see. And, um, and it, in terms of my own healing process, I'm doing all my acupuncture virtually. So for, you know, 25, 30 years, I've been taking my physical body to the acupuncturist and resting in their care. But now it's like, no, no, this is how I'm feeling. And so 
No, you need pericardium six. So feel along your wrist here. So the process of virtue, the paradox of complex constructed systems that yield up the possibility of an esoteric connection and arrival at more self-responsibility around how to be here is the healing that's been in that for me to really come back into my own body and go, oh, make this connection. Mm -hmm. uh, I have heard from some of you around that, and I just want to thank you for talking about this this healing possibility that we're experiencing now. Love that. Really learning. I mean, again, I think we've spoken of this, but I'm struck by it really deeply. Again, learning to properly father ourselves instead of toxically father ourselves and learning yeah. to truly care for ourselves instead of offloading the care to others that yeah. we're practicing these things, hopefully more. How, how do we properly create structure and order in our days and care for ourselves in that way and properly tend when we need to tend with with good instruction it's very sweet and for me really highlights that capricorn cancer dialogue well the other part of this and i i was thinking about this when as Anne was talking and also revisiting gilgamesh and um in this particular chapter and I've talked about this a bit before, but in the Confucian idea of Shao, which is filial piety, it's the idea that good governance comes from right relationship. Mm -hmm. And that, that personal, it isn't that personal affection and love aren't important. And, you know, in the West, we've romanticized love so impossibly in a way. But the idea that you love your father and you love your brother because it is through knowing what's in your heart that you're able to govern your heart. This is, this is Confucius, the Analects of Confucius. There's a, a wonderful accessible translation by Ezra Pound of this, but it's, it, it's a comment on governance. And, and essentially it says, how can a man govern others if he can't govern himself? How, how, how can a man govern others if he can't govern his family? How can he govern his family if he can't govern himself? How can he govern himself if he can't govern his heart? How can he govern his heart if he doesn't know what's at the root? And so the whole idea of good governance is that it begins when exactly what this examination, the self-examination that Jung is going through that how we are all able together is through right relationship that comes from knowing what's at the root. Mm -hmm. And that includes not just ancestry and DNA and common bonds, but the, the, the whole idea of how, how does your matter hold spirit and what's your responsibility about it? And how do you transact that in right relationship with other people? Mm -hmm. And how does that translate itself into who you're going to vote for for mayor and how we're going to yeah the, the capacity to witness those in power that are resonant with with balance versus resonant with domination or conquering yeah. that if you don't withdraw those projections and do that inner work of understanding what true wholeness looks like you misperceive it in leaders we all misperceive it in our leaders mm. right and you vote you vote the wrong way 
so to speak. I'm going to leave that statement. I think there are ways to vote the wrong way. <laughs> well, and I, 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 I just want to say one short thing. Yeah. Um, a friend sent me a really interesting reading about a, a certain indigenous point of view about leadership. And they say, we don't elect our leaders. What's necessary to rise in this moment shows itself to us. And we work with them until that's done. And they may not, that may be it. That may be, but they perceive what arises, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's an election unto itself. You know, I would yeah. because they have the capacity to perceive what is arising versus to ignore it. And and our yeah. culture is just in the ignoring phase. Well, we're hopeful. Yeah. Well, maybe we're getting better. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Thanks, uh, Alexandra. Let's. We'll end with your question here. Your comment. Yeah. Hopefully, this can be like opened up and I'm sorry to take the last word that wasn't really my intention but um a theme that came up for me for the first chapter and this chapter is um an idea taken from Hannah Arendt's work Mm -hmm. that forgiveness is the only thing that can rewrite the past Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering it's not really a direct theme I feel like that came up in chapter one or this chapter but I feel like maybe it's held some sort of space with these sessions and what people think, what role that plays in these, as we're re-relating to our internal, external realities, trying to transform society, rebuild institutions where we find forgiveness as do you know, monuments do you know the, are being torn down and yeah. et cetera. Alexandra, do you know the context for that quote with, with a rent? Maybe Anne does. one thing I know about that is that she certainly needed it where Heidegger was concerned (laughs) (laughs) may I just say one thing there's a wonderful sentence in there that says uh, about his care I'm going to carry you down into the western land my comrades will happily accommodate such a large fantasy it strikes me that that's what we're trying to do right now. Mm-hmm. And certainly Jung gave an incredible foundation. The whole notion of the collective unconscious is such a gift to our being able to accommodate such a large fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that sentence was very, very central. Mm-hmm. That was all. Thank Great. you. Um, I do just want to speak for a moment to forgiveness for Alexandra, because I think you bring up an important point. And I am hesitant to, to respond to it personally from Arendt's perspective, because I don't know the context. But um, it, it brings up for me the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, uh, yeah. with, um, Desmond Tutu, you know, and the yeah. way that that's been translated, that truth and reconciliation um, for me, has a sense of conscious forgiveness. How do we forgive in, a, in an essence of not forgetting and not wiping away the evils? That's my guess is where Hannah Arendt would be more versus a kind of Christian orientation of forgiveness. Because I think in all of our society, with the idea of reparations coming to the fore for the first time, that while there may be all sorts of components of forgiveness in our society that are required, we can't do that without tangible, something tangible that says to victims of hundreds of years in all sorts of sectors of of our society, we don't expect you to forgive the ills without actually having some update to society now, because otherwise Mm -hmm. it's, 
it's really um, just further self uh, harm, you know, or further collective harm. So, um, you know, and Jung speaks to this, it's, it's Jung and Hannah Arendt both spoke to this for, for me in the writings is we can't just do this in the imaginal, right? We're always mm -hmm. saying just it's the inner and the outer. It's so it's the emotion and the tangible support reparations of here is actual money from your former labor that was never paid, right? I mean, here's what we actually do to, to heal society. It's not just a quality of caritas, you know, love for each other. So that's Alexandra, again, not fully knowing the, where this is, but really that's what sparks in me. I just wanted to respond for what was sparked in me. Yeah, I guess like being here with this group, it's the first time that I'm able to like deeply see the four kind of cornerstones of transitional justice, like these these reparations, truth, justice, and that it's is that inner external journey and like being able to connect, breaking down spiritual subconscious walls with activism, with academia. It's um Beautiful. it's an incredible intersection. And I'm so thankful. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. It lasts, I mean, again, I could just, we're riffing now, but I think it also speaks to me to the old idea of spiritual bypass, which is an idea from the 80s, but a Buddhist scholar, um, Buddhist psychotherapist, I believe, created this term spiritual bypass to say there's all these different ways that Buddhists and, and all religions can say, oh, I'm so awake, I'm doing the work and I'm, I'm healing and all of this. But if society remains and your family, you know, if, if all of the units beyond you remain in pain and in fragmentation, then you're, you know, you're just bypassing. You're using your spiritual experience or you're using your meditation practice or your relationship with God to just dodge social and personal issues. I think we do a lot of the same mm -hmm. stuff with activism now. I call it political bypass. I think a lot mm -hmm. of people claim a political position and bypass the actual work, the actual personal and psychological work and the actual work of society. We just mm -hmm. dodge it because we, we take a righteous position. So righteousness is a form of political bypass, in my opinion, where you know, there's all sorts of ways we can believe we're on the good side or we're doing the good work. But if society and our communities remain in tremendous pain and suffering, then nothing's really happening. So how do we do this work alchemically? And for me, again, the reason that Jung's work is transformative is because it's alchemical. He pulled that back and he said, what is transformation versus just wiping it away. That's Desmond Tutu again. It's transforming those relationships and communities with the truth and reconciliation. It's transformational. It's not just, I forgive, over, right? Al alchemy versus God or, you know, in that traditional way. And here we are. Got, I guess, Richard, do you want to, yeah, do you have kind of a brief question or comment? Because I think we should start to wrap up, not to put you on the spot here. Well, I don't want Alexandria to feel like she's the last uh, comment. So uh, I've been, uh, I have a question, I guess, uh, where we began early about the feminine and we give up the future of the world uh, without the feminine. What I'm wondering is in this uh, setting the egg before you, the God in his beginning and behold it, what is it? And as I think about the incubation of it with the magical warmth of your gaze, 
I guess I think of what is in the egg that you're carrying in your pocket or that any of us are carrying in our pockets. And I'm believing that uh, what we're talking about here, what maybe Jung is talking about here, is that the it is the future of the world that's being birthed or potentially being birthed uh, in, in our very midst right now by a movement from my, the arrogance that I hold in my mind and I drop down into the uh, depths of me, into my heart. And there's an egg there that uh, incubates into our, uh, a future of loving. So that's what I'm getting from today's uh, session. That's a pretty good it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that's what the it could be? I think, well, everybody's it, the form of it will be different, but the heart of it, that's what's at the root, you know, our love and our, not just our humanity, and it's, um, I, I'm, Jung, well, later we'll get into the animals, but for me, one of the, one, a part of what this is about is it's our whole world. It's the wind and it's the mountains and it's the rivers and it's the, the dogs and it's the Douglas fir trees and it's the jade plants and, you know, that, that it is um, an encompassing ardor and respect for the incredible complexity and multiplicity and life of where it is that we live. So I'm sure that there's different it's for other people, but for me, especially from the point of view of psychology and astrology, it's not just a human, it's not just for the humans. Yeah. Anne, did you want to also share? No, that was a mistake. But when oh. you, talk about <laughs> you talked about forgiveness, I was thinking of Kwame saying, what he was waiting for was white folk to start crying. Yes. I think Marcy said that yesterday, actually. But yeah, right. That, that, we, that we feel it as well as our citizens are being murdered. The skin color aside, our citizens are being murdered, that everybody feels that. Um, and we feel it, right? So again, here we are, Richard, with this sense of heart. I mean, that this quality of feeling you know, I'm struck, and Anne, this is, I think, my hope or kind of, you know, desire as your for your translation skills for this coming two sections, because we really get into this question of gender. I mean, Jung has shifted his gender association tremendously at this point, and God is all male, at least as far as the translation is concerned. And it used to be, remember, that he was really wrestling, is it possible that God is female? And, and he says, I almost threw my entire, you know, the whole history of humanity upside down trying to figure this out. And that really has kind of gone by the wayside. And, and, and it really does in Jung's psychology, the anima leads to the God. And for, for men in Jung's psychology, the God image is male. And for women in Jung's psychology, the God image is female. We can all do with that what we want as gender is being broken down more and more. And we're all learning about this stuff. But it does, it's curious to me. But it's a sweet last section, that whole, we didn't read the whole thing, maybe we can start there next week, but 298, that whole last piece of kind of him sheltering his God is really beautiful. So thank you, everyone. Love to all of you. Thanks for being here as always.
Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast. <laughs>